Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Talk Show Talk Show podcast and I'm your host George Grimwood. In this episode, Gary Roger of the Sitcom Club podcast and myself continue our discussion of the November the 9th 1972 edition of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. If you'd like to join in on the discussion, you can watch the episode yourself in the link provided in the description of this episode and you can follow us on Twitter at Talk Show Podcast, go to our Facebook page facebook.com forward slash Talk Show Podcast and if you want to get in touch, send us an email at admin at podnose.com. So now let's take it over to myself and Gary, where we continue our conversation, and this time it's about Joan Rivers and the Bee Gees. Now before Johnny introduces the first guest, we have a moment of verbal scuffling, where Johnny can't get out his words, and Ed uses the term something along the lines of you haven't been down to the back of the booth which i'm guessing is of course to do with the shall we say relaxed attitude to drinking before during and after the shows of course they do smoke throughout we've mentioned that previously so what would you say that i would say so yeah i think there is greater tolerance of alcohol in show business and particularly in the broadcast industry at this time. I mean, we've seen footage of, for example, newscasters typing away, preparing their script with glass of whiskey to one side. And obviously, as you said, with regard to the smoking, I mean, it's quite common in this era to see hosts and guests just light up and have the burning cigarette in hand throughout. And one little instance, which this reminds me of, though it never goes quite as far as this, is in Bob Monkhouse's second autobiography. He describes how he was writing a radio show for Bing Crosby. And they go out to lunch, the BBC. This is way, way back. This is the 1950s. Bing is quite sort of merry early on. And by the end of the lunch, he is pretty much completely hammered. And there he is then basically just sort of flat out. And Bob Monkhouse and the others, the BBC producers, are getting worried, thinking, what the hell are we going to do? Because we've got to do a show, and we have no Bing, because he's out like a light. And then, with just a few minutes to go, his agent arrives, and just whispers to Bing Crosby, wake up, Mr. B, time to work. And Bing Crosby just sits up like Frankenstein's monster, and goes out and performs his show, word perfect, does a little bit of ad-libbing with the band and so on, everything exactly perfect. And then as soon as they walked off the stage behind the curtain, just collapsed straight back into his seat again. He seemed to have a remarkable ability to perform when the lights were on. And perhaps there's a little bit of that going on here, not specifically with Carson and with McMahon, but just in general, I think that that whole show must go on type ethos, I think probably permeates throughout the performers of this particular era. And a silly little thing like alcohol consumption is not going to get in their way. And the only example that I'm fully aware of where it's really collided is a clip that's from the late 70s Tonight Show. And you have Ed McMahon quite clearly soused on air with Johnny Carson, who milks it for what it's worth. And it's a very amusing clip, but I don't think it was a frequent issue. But maybe it was, and hopefully we will see more shows along the way to perhaps illustrate or indeed not illustrate the relaxed element of the cigarettes and alcohol on the talk show. So then they introduce Joan Rivers, except we don't see Joan Rivers come from the side of the stage or through the curtains because there's a musical edit. They remove the musical entrance of the guest. It goes, and now Joan Rivers, and there she is on the seat. No sign of Doc Severinsen 
No sign of the band. We only encounter Doc Severinsen throughout this show because of these musical edits at the beginning when he's there with Johnny and being mocked for his patchwork costume. It does sound as if, for whatever reason, the Carson Entertainment Group, when they're putting these episodes on YouTube, it sounds like they've got a license for Johnny's theme, which would be a pretty big omission if they had to also remove that as well. But that doesn't necessarily extend to each individual piece that would have accompanied each guest on a nightly basis, because I presume that they would have had their own individual little theme performed by the doc. And of course, it would be nice to see them intact, and it would be nice to at least try and figure out which guests had their own set theme. I mean, for example, Don Rickles, who we'll be covering extensively further down the line in a later show, he always has the same theme as he comes out to any talk show appearance. He always has the matador. I don't think it's actually called the matador, but it's sort of it always reminds me of the bullfighter theme. It might even be that, I don't know, but we'll look into that. Joan Rivers, wearing a elegant black dress, comes on stage, or so we believe, because we don't actually see that part. And we go straight into it, and Joan is on form. This was time of her career where she released a couple of books. There was a book that she's promoting on this show, and she's on form. She's quick. She's quick on the draw. It's interesting to look both at Joan Rivers and, in a short while, the Bee Gees, in regards to their overall involvement and attitude with and towards talk shows. But as it stands, Joan Rivers, 1972, on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, things are good. Things are looking up. It's a good vibe. She talks about her previous involvement with having contributed a script to The Tonight Show with her comic soulmate, Trevor Silverman, who went on to write for The Mary Tyler Moore Show. In fact, I discovered remained uncredited on the Romancing the Stone screenplay way further down the line. Have you seen Romancing the Stone? Oh, a long, long time ago. What's that about? I can't remember. It's, what's his name? And herself, and there's sort of, you know, and there's a sequel as well. And is Danny DeVito in it, I think, possibly. Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner? That's him. Yep, yep. Yeah. Well, I should really watch that. Yeah. Or not. And there's a very quick-fire relationship to it. And it's very sweet to see, actually, because Johnny is clearly, I wouldn't say overwhelmed, but clearly enthralled, clearly enamoured by the quick wit of Joan Rivers and is consistently impressed by her and she's always just solid it was one-liners and most of them hit and even if they don't she's too quick for it to be an issue they go straight into the next part and it just hits almost every time what's your relationship with Joan Rivers I have seen her on occasion I remember her UK talk show she did with Peter Cook in the mid-1980s I have to admit that I'm not a huge fan of Joan Rivers herself. I, I suspect that it's just perhaps something about that sort of fast-talking New Yorker style that just doesn't do it for me. But I agree that she goes over very, very well on this show. And, yeah, she doesn't pause for breath. And so even if a, a gag falls flat, then she doesn't really let it get in her way because she's already on to the next one. So she's ideal as an opening guest for a show like this, whereas later on in the show, you've got guests who are a bit more sort of conversational as time's winding down towards the one o'clock hour. So yeah, she's absolutely ideal to get the show off to a good start at an energetic pace. I was quite intrigued to see that as the top billing, mm. I think it's a fair comment, top billing performer on the show, this is primarily due to the fact that she had to leave early to go somewhere else, to go to a premiere, which we'll mention shortly. But I would have been interested to see her being paired up on the sofa with Dr. David Rubin. Yeah, it is a shame sometimes when you do get that kind of situation occur. I've seen it sometimes with particular guests who turn up Perhaps surprisingly, they turn up as the first guest on a show, and you can sort of tell that the time 
that was made available to the host was limited. So they come along, they have their bit, and then the show has to continue with everyone else. But, whereas, yeah, it is it is preferable, I think, when you've got all the guests staying on throughout, and that was an approach that was used by Michael Parkinson, of course, and was used by Michael Aspel later on. Whereas, I think Terry Wogan, in his shows, tended to favour having the one guest having their interview and then replace them with next guest and so on. And yeah, it just comes down to the individual host and works and what works best. And now of course you've got like Graham Norton, for example, bringing everyone out to begin with. And then of course then still giving them their own sort of ten minutes or so in the spotlight, but having all of that interplay right from the word go. Jonathan Ross also had quite a nice original element to the way that he integrated the guests by having them all in the green room, but the green room, it cuts back to occasionally so that we can see that they're all there. And not always to the best success, but it's a nice touch to see them all there together. And they are aware that the camera could cut back to them, but it does also give them the opportunity to perhaps bond or really not bond, depending on which guests collide. That's part of the bit that's most interest to myself, to be honest. It's not so much what the performer is like when they're performing, but I'm really interested to see how they are in their downtime, so to speak. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I quite like, for example, like the gotchas on Noel Edmonds' house party, for example. Because although they've still given the green light for this to be shown after the event, you are getting to see a little bit of their personality when they don't realise that they've got a camera pointed at them at the time. Although, of course, they do have to sign a release to approve of it. I well, That's the thing, yeah. yeah. There must have been a few times when gotchas were filmed and not approved, I would have thought. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've heard of one specific occasion at least, but by and large, I suspect that once they've calmed down, they probably not necessarily see the funny side of it, but see that it could be advantageous to them, unless they've behaved like a complete prick throughout, in which case, no, they're not going to sign the release. And with that in mind, are you going to reveal who this one example is? Is it something that you've been told? I, I don't know. I know. I don't know. I don't know this thing. I don't know the name of it. I, I believe it's a sportsman. That's all I know about it. But I believe that whoever it was behaved just so badly that they realised it would not be good to put this out in the public domain. And it was somebody... Like I said, I understand it was a sportsman. That's as much as I know about it. But I understand that they sort of came off with a sort of, do you know who I am sort of attitude. Well. Wow. Well, I guess the other element here is, of course, there's a interesting element of the Battle of the Sexes in this episode. I mean, later on you have Dr. David Rubin and Carson bonding over a particular journalist, female journalist, who had more or less criticised both of them for various reasons. And one of the first things that Joan Rivers states in the interview is that nobody likes women writers. And to Carson's defence, he does mention Selma Diamond, who... At this point, he'd written for You Bet Your Life, Duffy's Tavern, The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet, and it was eventually hired by Goodman Ace, who previously hired her for some work on Danny Kaye's radio show in the 40s, and she wanted to work for this show called The Big Show, which was a big radio variety program. And she ended up working for Sid Caesar and getting involved in Your Show of Shows, which I haven't seen. I've only seen clips of Your Show of Shows. And very much uh, integral female comedy writer that paved the way for many other female comedians and performers. And I would like to see if Selma Diamond perhaps featured on any of the Tonight Show episodes. I think the way that Johnny Carson references Selma Diamond, because he doesn't know that she's going to necessarily come out with Nobody Likes Women Writers, I'd like to think that either he knows that from 
having had her on the show, or alternatively, I like the idea that Johnny Carson is a comedy geek. I suspect that he probably was to an extent, and I think the same would go for the magicians that he had on the show because he was an amateur magician in the past. So, yeah, I think that he is interested in the mechanics of comedy, and I think that he's someone who's quite happy just to chat about that kind of thing. I think it's, I suppose it possibly depends again on the positioning in the show. You want someone who's sort of broad and speaking to the wider audience as your first guest, perhaps. But by the time you get to guest three or four, then it's a bit more laid back then. And perhaps you've got the elbow room to be able to discuss things which might incorporate a little bit of jargon or whatever it may be. And I think that comes across when they start talking about New York versus Los Angeles. Of course, 1972 was the year that they moved The Tonight Show from New York to Burbank. And funnily enough, the following week, they go back to New York for three weeks or so. But Joan Rivers, of course, is at this point a New York voice in a Los Angeles setting. And it goes down incredibly well. And the fact that when Johnny Carson introduces Joan Rivers... He says that she'll be performing at the Yee Little Club in Beverly Hills and opens at the Sahara Hotel in Vegas on November 28th. And the fact that she's got all these gigs and in Johnny's intro, he describes her as the original comedienne is a big compliment from Johnny Carson. And it's in retrospect, it's sad the way that things turned out, of course. And just on that point, when he says she's the original comedienne, as he presumably he's talking about stand up. I seem so. Because there's many, many comedy performers who've come before Joan Rivers, and one name that springs to mind immediately, I would say, would be Lucille Ball, as far as being perhaps the biggest female comedy star at that point. Not to mention all, of course, the different sporting actresses and so on, but I presume that he's talking about stand-up comedy there rather than just overall comedic performers. Because, yeah, certainly Lucille Ball would be, at that point, the most famous comedian in the world. That's a good point. And... In that respect, I'm led to believe that when he uses the term original comedienne, because of her strength to come forward in what was perceived to be a difficult time for women as a whole, and in this particular quadrant, women writers and women in comedy, I think the term original comedienne perhaps refers to her as the woman who defined women could be not comedians, but in their own right, comedians. Yeah, quite possibly so, yeah. But, of course, it wasn't to last. I mean... 14 years later, 1986, Joan Rivers gets The Late Show on Fox, and they don't speak again. Well, I'm sure it won't be the only time that we're ever discussing late-night talk shows on Fox. But in this particular instance, we're not talking about 1993, we're talking about 1986. And it's interesting to hear the two different sides of this related, because you read a quote to me the other day from Joan Rivers which implied that Joan Rivers phoned Johnny Carson, told him that she was taking the slot on Fox opposite himself and that he hung up and never spoke to her again. Now, that may be accurate, but the key detail there is when did she phone him to tell him and had he already heard about it? Because that's the that's my interpretation of it, that's my understanding of it, is that he had heard the, if not the actual full-on press release, he had already heard the rumours and effectively confirmation that this was going to happen before she then confirmed it herself. And I suspect that he probably felt as if he was in a position to expect to hear that from her first. Well, one of the other ways that it's been told is that when Joan Rivers accepted, Carson discovered the news from seeing a press conference on television 
and Joan Rivers was in the process of calling him, but he decided not to take the call. I would say, in that instance, I would say that was probably a little bit, still a little bit too late on her part to ring himself, but it could be that she was asked to keep things on the wraps until that press conference took place in order to then stop it leaking. And because of that, they never spoke again. And it wasn't until February 17th of 2014, this year, where Joan Rivers reappeared, returned to Tonight's Show with Jimmy Fallon on his first show, appearing with many, many other celebrities. And one day in the near future, we will talk about Jimmy Fallon and his current run on the Tonight Show. But back to Joan Rivers in 1972, in better times in terms of the Carson Rivers relationship. And they talk about New York versus Los Angeles, and this leads to Joan talking about her daughter, Melissa, who is now, in the present day, co-hosting with her mother in various shows and red carpet events. And I like the fact that she, of course, praises her daughter, and but at the same time says she wouldn't put her up against Bobby Fischer. And I looked up Bobby Fischer, and he was the world chess champion. And I just like the idea that somewhere... I must be able to watch this. I wouldn't mind watching the World Chess Championship of 1972, perhaps, which was only a few months previously. So it's obviously still prevalent in the public's mind, perhaps, at this point. But Bobby Fischer had been a guest on The Tonight Show. To just quickly go back to 86 for a moment, have you seen much of Joan Rivers Fox talk show? I haven't, but I'm giddy at the thought of seeing not only that, but also I only yesterday discovered about the Joan Rivers Peter Cook show it's an interesting little curiosity. Joan Rivers hosting in the UK on the BBC and with Peter Cook in the sort of Ed McMahon role. And it's odd, to be honest. It's an it's an odd show. I mean, I think that her choice of guests she's got, for example, she's got some guests who are absolutely ideal on the talk show circuit, like, for example, Kenneth Williams. And there's a rather uncomfortable not not overtly, but there's a rather uncomfortable section where Dudley Moore is one of our guests. And although it's not really said, and Dudley Moore certainly doesn't say it, it's implied that here is Dudley Moore, the star of the big screen and Hollywood and so on. And meanwhile, here's Peter Cook, who, generally speaking, is considered the funnier of the two and the member of the double act who was sort of the comedic genius, rightly in my opinion. But here he is, sort of in reduced circumstances. You know, just doing this sort of supporting role and occasionally being asked to sort of chip in and what have you. And, I mean, there's one point where Bernard Manning is one of the guests and he just looks round and says, you're funny tonight, Peter. And just as if to, you know, dig an elbow into him. And it, it's really it's really odd. I mean, it's, 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 it's an odd piece of work as far as watching it as a fan of Peter Cook, anyway. And as far as Joan Rivers is concerned, you've got the sort of the novelty factor of her speaking to all of these British guests and you've got the usual kind of business, you've got confusion over individual words or expressions and so on. Funnily enough, I actually like Peter Cook himself because, of course, he had his very, very short-lived chat show. I think it was 1971 on BBC. As I, I believe there was perhaps audio of one episode in existence and that's it. And I think, was it about three episodes that they actually got into the show before it was pulled? All I know is that I want to see this, or at the very least hear that bit of audio. The story that I'd heard, and I think it was from a BBC Two documentary, I think it was around about 2003, 2004, thereabouts, is 
that they tried this format. I think it was BBC One they tried this format. And I think that he, it wasn't just Peter Cook himself. I think he had like other people like off camera. He had like the sort of Ed McMahon figure there as well. But I mean, he himself said later on, I think it was might have been to Michael Parkinson, that the reason that it didn't work was because he realised as soon as the guest started speaking, he wasn't interested in what they were saying. <laughs> so then he just stopped listening to them. But after, I think it was about three weeks, Bill Cotton wants to pull the plug on the show. And he's surprised to get word back from Peter Cook's agent that he doesn't want to cancel. He wants to continue with it. And he has this meeting with them. And Peter Cook is sort of resolute about this. And then eventually Cook's agent says to Bill Cotton, can I have a word with you in private? And his agent tells Cotton that Peter actually doesn't want to continue with the show, but he's already spent all the money. <laughs> he's been paid up front for the whole series. And this is the reason why he's keen to press ahead with it, because he can't pay it back. And Bill Cotton said, well, we'll work something out. Don't worry about that. So that that would be fascinating. That would be lovely to, to try and get hold of the audio of that. That's that's the only bit of it that, that still exists, is, is I think audio of the majority of one episode. There's certainly no video exists of it. But what reminded me of that was talking about Joan Rivers. I get the impression that unlike Johnny Carson, I don't really get the impression that Joan Rivers would be particularly interested in what her guests are saying. I know this is unfair because I haven't seen the show. I know it's unfair, but it's just the impression that I get of her. And whereas, like you said, that Johnny Carson is interested, for example, in things like the mechanics of comedy and so on, he's somebody who's very, very generous with his time on the show. He is not remotely put out if somebody, if a guest is getting more laughs than he is. And if there's a void and there's a vacuum, then yeah, yeah, he'll fill it. Then if somebody isn't going down well, then he's going to then up the tempo and so on to make sure that the show goes well. But yeah, if somebody like John Rivers is getting laughs, then he's not remotely threatened by that. He's quite happy to let that happen. Whereas, I don't know, I just get the impression from Joan Rivers, I suspect that if you were a guest on her show, perhaps you are setting yourself up to be a bit more of the stooge for her retorts. But, like I say, not seen the shows, so I really can't say, but it's just the impression I get. And just to clarify, this talk show, which featured Peter Cook, was called Joan Rivers' Can We Talk, which was the same year, in 1986, as when The Late Show starring Joan Rivers came out. And, if I'm not mistaken, the circumstances regarding the demise of that show, aside from the fact that it was tinged with tragedy in relation to Joan Rivers' husband, Edgar Rosenberg, and the network wanted to push him out as someone having any involvement in the show, it kind of, in some respects, mirrors the circumstances regarding Leno and his agent, Alan Kushnick, when Leno got The Tonight Show. And just one thing that you mentioned there just now about how Joan Rivers hadn't been back on The Tonight Show until recently with Jimmy Fallon. Was there ever anything, was there any issue between herself and Jay Leno? I believe the official line was Leno wished to continue Carson's boycott out of respect to Johnny Carson and very little respect to Joan Rivers. And there was nothing personal as such, but essentially it was Leno more or less following in the footsteps of Carson rather than anything in particular. I'd be interested to know if Joan Rivers had ever appeared on The Late Show with David Letterman post-93 in that case. I believe Joan Rivers certainly has been on Letterman in recent years, but once again, something else we'll have to look into. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking that, again, if it's a respect to Johnny Carson, then I suspect that Letterman would also sort of... I mean, it's different set of circumstances because we're not talking about The Tonight Show, but nevertheless, I think that if Joan Rivers had suddenly turned up on the first night of The Late Show with David Letterman, that would have been a bit awkward. 
And of course, Johnny Carson did appear with David Lippman. Was it two years or so? Was it about? I think was it a couple of years after we left the Tonight Show? I think was it 1994 when Johnny Carson appeared with David Letterman. He made that was his final appearance on any of the late night shows, wasn't it? And soaked up his time on the desk. He sat there, <laughs> yes. soaked it in, and then left. I didn't say anything. It was a silent appearance. I believe that was 96. Right. I think. So there's another ad break, and we have an animated Kodak advert regarding the ugly duckling with a lovely. Slightly clunky tag of your prince will live happily ever after. (laughs) And the second advert features a man, I believe from Santa Domingo, being translated by a voiceover, still with an accent, advertising Dutch Master Cigars. And I'm not saying there is any reason why he shouldn't have an accent, but it's just that slight element of, well, we don't know what he's saying, but just so you capture the essence of what he's saying, we'll dub him over with someone who has the accent of someone who can speak English. (laughs) <laughs> from Santa Domingo. That's generally the implication. Dutch Master Cigars is what is advertised following that. So we come back from the break, and they talk about raising kids, and this is in relation to Joan Rivers' new book, which at the time she says due out in six months, which it wasn't in the end. It didn't actually come out until 1974, and it was called Having a Baby Can Be a Scream, and sort of a self-help humour book in the vein of Dr. Benjamin Spock who sort of wrote the handbook to babies. And there's a line amidst all of this where Johnny says, you're too thin. And Jonathan Sloman mentioned to me in regards to this that this is what made their relationship perfect because usually, as illustrated by Johnny's reaction when, I won't give away the gag, but Joan responds in such a way that is a punchline and Johnny laments not lining it up for her. He says... I should have referred to you no longer being fat as opposed to now being thin. And Jonathan mentioned that this emphasizes the special relationship they had where Johnny was great at lining up the gags for the punchlines to exist, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it comes back to, again, Carson having respect for his fellow performers and never feeling threatened, never feeling threatened if somebody comes out with an absolute beaut of a punchline. He's not sitting there like Hank Kingsley would be, for example, if that was him. Yeah. The way that he would react to something like that. He 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 really does seem to enjoy it when his guests not only go down well with the audience as guests, but he enjoys them as performers in their own right. And they don't always have to simply be on the couch to make him look good. And throughout this interview, Johnny clearly has this giddy joy in him. It's wonderful to see that enthusiasm with this guest and that he's genuinely elated to have someone this quick-witted and entertaining on the show. And Joan references Heidi Abramowitz, which, if I'm not mistaken, is her sort of loose woman alter ego persona. And at this point, she'd written, I believe, a book about Heidi Abramowitz and had mentioned her many times in her routine. Now, Heidi Abramowitz was a character created by Joan Rivers to channel a particular alter ego of hers. Gary, what are your thoughts on characters on shows? Now, this isn't Joan Rivers playing a character, but it's her and Johnny and perhaps some of the audience, not all of the audience I would have thought, but some of the audience perhaps being in on the joke where she's talking about a character as if it was a real person and making jokes about them. And Johnny's, oh, well, I'm sure Heidi doesn't appreciate you saying that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. You do get performers who are out-and-out character comedians and 
then of course I mean well, the one name that springs to mind in the UK as far as someone who made a virtue of having this sort of cast of characters that he could introduce into his routines is Larry Grayson because he had this whole sort of wealth of all these different names that he would refer to and these were all sort of composites made up of people that his mother knew because as he said his household was the only one in the street that had a phone so all the neighbours would come in to make him receive calls and he would overhear these conversations and from there he would then start to come up with these comic personas and then give them characteristics and give them a background and, and so on and so on. So yeah, I mean, that that's a, it's an interesting approach. I mean, some comedians, for example, if you're a satirist, then you're going to go after real people. If you, for example, specialize in self-deprecating humor, then your target's principally going to be yourself. You could go down the sort of the observational route, I suppose. You could say perhaps like the Victoria Wood route, which is simply pointing out characteristics in different people without actually necessarily coming up with personas for them. Uh, and of course, that's the kind of thing that now you get people like Michael McIntyre doing as well. But yeah, I mean, everybody's got their own sort of different approach. And I would certainly say that this approach is preferable to somebody who is just going on doing gags about public figures, because after a while, that gets a little bit tiresome. And I don't know, I don't find that particularly endearing quality if, if most of your materials aimed at other people. So it's quite nice, actually. It's quite a nice approach it's quite a nice device to use whereby you may be making gags about other people but you're not hurting their feelings because they're probably even if they're the butt of the joke unwittingly they're probably saying i know somebody just like that and that's not to say of course that guests in character like of course damon nerevridge who had joan rivers on their show years later not to say that those kind of characters aren't effective and of course highly welcome on guest shows it's certainly on talk shows, it certainly makes a difference. And for reasons that may become apparent shortly, Part 5B, focusing on the Bee Gees and musical guests in general, will be available at the end of the week. For now, however, I'm afraid I must end this episode on some sad news. It came to my attention yesterday that my friend and friend of the show, Casey, had passed away. We had never met in person, but over the last few years we had developed a good friendship over Skype, and aside from having many in-depth conversations and debates about talk shows and comedy in general, we'd also, on many occasions, on that of a late night, shared our troubles and tried to make sense of the world together. He was always there for you as a friend, and I'd like to think that he thought the same of me. My thoughts are with his family, and my only regret is that I didn't get to meet him in person. And in this respect, this episode, and indeed the podcast, is dedicated in Casey's memory. I bid you a very heartfelt good night.